Happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. Um, very grateful for um, all of you dads in our church. Y'all have been, um, I don't know, to me, y'all, I look up to every single one of you. I'm really grateful for you. Um, very appreciative of the lives you lead. So this morning, I'll be talking about, uh, we'll be looking at James chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. How do I get this go up? Pull it up. Nice. And we'll be looking at James chapter 1. Um, just a little bit of background. We'll be looking at James 1 through, or James, the book of James throughout the whole summer. Um, and so before we get started, I want to give a little bit of background information, um, just some ideas um, into uh, the context of the book. It's always important, as we've heard um, from Kevin last week, and I know talked about it some over the um, course of, as we've studied Luke, very good, very important to make sure you understand the audience of the scripture you're reading, the context that it's been written in, um, and uh, very important is who it was written to. Um, And it's helpful to understand who wrote it to, not that we know that, not not that we know who wrote every book of the Bible, but it's always helpful. So some of the background of James. There are a lot of people named James throughout the scripture, but the one we think who wrote this is actually the half-brother of Jesus. Um, James did not, we know that Jesus' family, at least his brothers, did not believe him for some time, Um, but ultimately they did come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Um, That probably occurred following the resurrection of Christ, and being that close to Jesus, I mean, that would be pretty shocking to see someone raised from the dead. So um, they certainly be believed after that. James is one of the first books or letters that was written in, of the New Testament. It was written 10 to 20 years following Jesus' resurrection, so around 50 A.D. Um, so it was written really close to, to Jesus' resurrection. Um, so... One thing that's important to notice throughout this, um, this scripture, and it's pretty cool because James being the half-brother of Jesus is kind of related to Jesus. They didn't have the same father, um, but they both had the same mother, Mary. Um, so James could have easily identified as the half-brother of Jesus, but throughout the, all the whole book of James, he doesn't do that. He, um, in fact, is incredibly humble. And so throughout this entire book, as we studied it over the summer, make sure you keep your eye out and listen to um, the humility that he speaks of. Um, we'll see some of it here this morning. Um, in fact, instead of addressing himself as the brother of Jesus, we see in the very first verse here that he calls himself a slave of God or a servant of God. Um, so he views himself completely indebted and under the authority of Christ. Um, we also see elsewhere in scripture in Acts that James is actually one of the early leaders of the church in Jerusalem so he's got a lot of influence and he's um, really a a powerful authority in the the early Christian church so um, let's go ahead and read James 1, 1 through 15 so James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. 
Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed, but in the same way the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Um, so a couple things I want us to walk away with before, um, before we're done here. And the couple main ideas here that I want us to look at and understand is that, one, challenges are inevitable. Um, We will all face challenges. Um, I want us to learn how we should respond to our challenges, how we need to respond to trials. Also, prayer is essential, and all believers should pray when facing a challenge or decision. Um, And then no matter what happens in this world, there's a greater glory awaiting true believers. Um, So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come here, um, worship you, and to hear the children worship you. Uh, God, we give you the glory. Thank you so much for um, bringing us together and allowing us to worship you in safety uh, where many can't. We pray for churches around the world today um, that your truth would go forward. Lord, I pray for us here this morning that You would open our hearts and soften our hearts, open our minds that we can be receptive to your truth. Um, Help us to to grow and learn to trust you in all circumstances. Help us to have joy in all circumstances and um, draw nearer to you this morning. Thank you for your son and that his his victory over death gives us this incredible joy that we can have. And We just thank you for that and just pray for your will to be done this morning and for your name to be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 1, James, a servant of God. I said earlier he addressed himself as a servant of God. And then he says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Who he's referring to in the 12 tribes, um, as the 12 tribes are the Jewish Christians, the early church Jewish Christians. Um, It's very important, especially later on, in the book of James to understand who he is writing to and the audience that he's, he's tailoring his letter to because um, there can be some confusing, th- confusing things. Fortunately, this morning, chapter 1 is pretty straightforward, and so it's, it's very um, applicable and easy to understand. Um, and James does a great job of using examples and things like that to illustrate his points. So if we look at verse 2, he says, Consider it... Pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's pretty, I mean, (laughs) 
It's like in an email you type in, good afternoon, and then you hit them with like your big point, huge, like big command right then immediately. <coughs> James doesn't waste any time getting into to depth or important, um, important content. Um, I want us to look at the word consider here. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider, the definition of consider is to think carefully about, especially in order to make a decision. Um, so it's not always an easy thing to consider. It's not like our first reaction is to, to think deeply about something. Often we respond with emotion or we respond in an automatic way. Um, so joy is not an immediate response when we face difficult times or challenges, um, when hard things come our way. However, joy is a choice. It is a decision we have to make. Um, you have to decide to have joy, and it, it doesn't just happen. You can choose whether or not to consider your circumstance and think about your circumstance. Um, and then you can choose to bring your circumstances before the Lord. Um, and we'll talk more about that in de- detail. <clears throat> So what kind of joy is James talking about right here? Well, he's not talking about happiness. Um, Happiness is simply an emotion in that we experience. It it kind of is a response. I mean, for me, sometimes drinking a Coke can make me happy. So something like that is not what James is referring to here. Um, He's not saying that... um, He's not saying not to be... Not to mourn or not to be angry, or not to be full of emotion. Um, He's certainly not talking about that. Um, I mean, we see in Jesus' life, Jesus was full of emotion. I mean, he flipped tables. So, I mean, Jesus definitely is full of emotion. Um, So he's certainly not referring to happiness. I want to separate that thought of happiness and joy. Uh, Because happiness is something that is a momentary experience. It lasts temporally. Um, It doesn't last long term. Um, joy, however, joy, however, does. Um, try to think of joy as, especially joy in tough circumstances, joy kind of supersedes our up-and-down life. Um, joy is a consistent um, understanding and trust in God. So think of it as like a larger perspective than your current circumstance um, and the final outcome of the circumstance. So I like to think of it in two, two pictures. You've got the big picture and the little picture. Um, what I mean with the little picture is that you're able to step back from your immediate circumstance um, and kind of see through the smoke, um, and you're able to accept how God is using your situation to change you to be more like him or to reveal himself more to you. Um, you may not always know how that situation is shaping you at the time while you're in it, but you have trust that God is using that circumstance to shape you. Um, and you have to have the faith to trust that he has good things in store for you. If you want to look at it with big picture as well, um, you're able to step way back from your entire life circumstances, um, all the things you've been through and what you're going through now, and you're able to recognize that your life is temporal. Your life is short, um, it's not eternal, and that we will one day be restored to perfection and live with our Father in heaven, um, that we have this eternal hope that ultimately, though the challenges are tough and our life may be difficult um, and you're, you go through tri- trials all the time, ultimately you'll have rest. Um, Paul says in Romans eight eighteen, 
Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to glory that will be revealed in us. So notice here also in this first verse, he says, consider it. It's not, um, oh, I'm sorry. He says here, there's not an if you face trials of many kinds. He doesn't say, consider it pure joy, my brothers, if you face a trial of many kinds. He says, whenever you face trials of many kinds, um, you will face challenges. Everyone will face challenges. Everyone will face difficult times. Um, In fact, I'm sure that every single person in here has probably faced difficult times already. Um, You know, we all face different challenges of different calibers in our own circumstances. Um, But we've all faced challenges. And I guarantee you, if I ask you to raise your hand, if you think you're going to encounter more challenges in the future, every one of you would raise your hand. Because you know, we know, it's just something we know that um, we will face difficult times. Um, we live in a broken world, and it's definitely far from perfect. <clears throat> it's, unfortunately, it's a natural consequence of our sinful nature. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But there is a fundamental difference between how believers and unbelievers respond to trials. And I want to touch on that just real briefly. Um, the difference between a believer um, a believer facing a trial is that a believer has an incredible hope that can fuel our joy. Um, when we have a real and lasting, re- we have a real and lasting reason to be joyful. Um, a not yet follower of Jesus, often joy is temporary and it can end up kind of being confused with happiness. Um, and so what ends up happening is the unbelievers really has a hard time through trials and circumstances because um, they can only see small picture. They don't get that big picture. Um, you know, many of you know Michelle works at Mercy Health Center here in Athens, so she gets to see all different kinds of people um, from all different places. Mercy is a health clinic that provides health care and support to those who are unable to afford it and who don't have insurance and can't get insurance. And so she sees a ton of different kinds of people, and she is the first person that these people see when they come to Mercy. Um, They have to schedule an appointment with her first before they get to go see a doctor. And we've had so many discussions about the difference in the responses of people who know Jesus and don't in their trials. Like, I mean, it is mind-blowing. In fact, I'd say the majority of the time, Michelle is able to tell if someone is a believer simply by the way they're describing their issues or simply by the way they're talking about their problems because there's this weird, inexplicable joy that they have while telling, them, telling her about her, their problems. And an unbeliever doesn't have that. I mean, it's clear that something is missing and that they are suffering greatly. Um, so it, it's just fascinating to see the difference in how a believer responds to challenge and how an unbeliever does. Um, and I think a lot of that, honestly, is evidence of faith a lot of times. That can be evidence that someone is a believer at how they respond to uh, a challenge. <clears throat> so why is it important for us to consider, cha- uh, consider our trials a joyful experience? Which sounds so counterintuitive, especially when you say it that way. But why, why should we consider trials joyful? Um, so let's look at the, the next two verses, verse 3 and 4. Because you know, you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So James tells us why it develops perseverance. 
And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So, quick note here. He says, you know. So, this is all an idea that we, we know. I mean, it's something that we understand, um, but we don't often put words to. And I think when you're able to put words to a concept that you know but don't, haven't necessarily thought deeply on, um, it helps us understand it better. It helps us know it better. Um, kind of becomes a, a natural thing to understand it and know it, almost like you've studied material. You know, you may know some sort of theory, is, um, but you don't know the name of the theory, and you don't know how to describe the theory. And then once you do, once you study it, and then it's a lot easier to understand. Um, and then you can teach it. <clears throat> so, successful outcome of a trial for a follower of Jesus is a stronger faith, ultimately. It's perseverance through challenges and the development of a steadfastness even through weariness and tiredness. So, I lo- we looked earlier at the definition of consider what consider means. I really want to look at the definition here of perseverance. And for me personally, this, this portion of James was really, really convicting because I get tired a lot. And so let's look at that definition. The definition is the ability or strength to continue or last, especially despite fatigue, stress, or other adverse conditions. That's really, really important to understand the definition of what endurance is. I mean, how often do you skip your quiet, t- quiet time because you've had a hard week and you're just tired and you sleep in a little bit longer? How often have you avoided conversations with people at work because they talk too much? Or you've got too much to do, you're too busy, so you've avoided opportunities there. How long do you go without praying simply because you don't have enough time? Ouch. And the hard thing about endurance is that when you're tired, when you're in that circumstance, all you want is to rest. All you can think about is resting. Um, It kind of consumes your ideas. So every decision that you make is influenced by your fatigue. But if you're able to take a step back and consider, think deeply on um, this tiredness that you're facing, you'll recognize that it is only temporary. Um, You won't be tired forever. And even if you're tired for 65, 85 years on this earth, that's still nothing in comparison to eternity. So as we build more and more endurance, as we learn and be, it becomes our natural response to think deeply on joy and, how, and joy in trials and how to respond to that, we'll see that we begin to notice that we're tired less. So not that you're not tired, but you start to notice it less. It starts to become less of an influence on your decision making. Um, and um, you become more prepared to witness and pray and worship in your daily life. So Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So our rest, our, our joy, our, even when we're tired, we can have rest in Jesus. So and there's another scripture I'll read later, Hebrews 4, which also discusses, discusses entering into Jesus' rest. Um, but that is a more final, eternal rest, and we'll come back to that um, later on in this, this passage. So, why is it important for us to have endurance? Why can't we just cruise by and make it by and let our natural responses go? And, um, 
Endurance is essential to be a, a mature follower of Jesus. It is essential to be able to face those tough times that make you fatigued, that make you tired, and be able to overcome that fatigue and still do the things God has asked you to do, even though you're tired. Uh, endurance is what helps helps you to be or helps us to be consistent to study the Bible and pray, even when we're tired. It helps us get up at 5:45 in the morning instead of 6:30, or instead of 6:45 to go to work um, and read your Bible and study. It helps us witness to others even when we're tired and don't want to. Um, it helps us worship in spirit and truth even when we're down and sad and something really tragic has happened. Um, it's what helps us overcome evil with good. It's what helps us flourish through hardship and come out stronger on the other side. I think um, you know, it, it helps us to separate and discern between the desires of the flesh and those of the spirit. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before Jesus is betrayed, Jesus calls a few of his disciples to join him in prayer. Well, multiple times, Jesus goes just a few yards away to pray, and when he returns, his disciples are sleeping. They fell asleep, and he just, all he asked them to do was pray. And uh, Jesus in Matthew 26, 41 says, Watch and pray so that you will not enter into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that is so true. We can feel that in our lives. I mean, that fatigue, that tiredness is because we are a fleshly people. We, we desire um, rest, but and our, and our spirit is often willing to you know, go witness to somebody or pray. And we, we often want those things, but we don't follow through with them because we're, um, we're in our flesh still. Um, So the next portion of this verse says, not lacking anything. So endurance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. At that point, you're prepared for any situation that comes your way. Um, God is your rock, and you're complete and totally trust in him to be your sustenance. He is your source for all things. In John fifteen five, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So at this point, when you become more and more mature, you begin to abide more and more in Jesus. He begin, becomes more and more of your rest. Um, and as we talked about earlier, you'll start to notice your fatigue less and things like that as Jesus becomes more and more of your, um, your solace. So all this is good that we've talked about so far. All this is really good and important. Um, but we still haven't discussed practically how to actually train to be joyful in tough times. Um, we talked briefly about taking a step back from your circumstances and kind of getting the pictures, the big picture, little picture. Um, but practically, what does it look like? Well, James is very practical, and so let's look at the next verse. Um, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives gener- generously. Well, real quick side note, if you just read James 1, 1 through 15, and you read it, your Bible breaks it up into paragraphs and things like that. If you read it segmented like that, it almost sounds like James is making a bunch of different little points, and they're not related. I would encourage you just to read it straight through and try to try to combine them all, not in like separate paragraphs, because James is actually making one giant point here about how to face trials and how to overcome tough circumstances. 
Um, so right here, I mean, it says, if any of you likes wisdom, that almost sounds like out of the blue. Like, what are you talking about? Um, you were just talking about facing joy and, or having joy in trials, and now we're talking about lacking wisdom. So just try, try and stay on track here and keep it all in the mindset of difficult times and circumstances. And I'll tie it in here. So he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously. Man, I'm having a hard time with that word this morning. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So if you look at that, if you have a hard time understanding something, if you're having a hard time having this joy, if you're having a hard time having energy or or, um, overcoming your fatigue or tiredness, if you're confused about your circumstance, if you don't know why it's happening to you, um, any of these questions, prayer is the answer. It's as simple as that. Um, Prayer needs to be our automatic response to any challenge. And we have to train to be that way. We have to train ourselves that way. Um, I know it's certainly much easier said than done. Um, And it doesn't come naturally to pray when something bad happens or even when you have to make a big decision. Often we just do it without considering the Lord's um, counsel. Um, But it's like, like I said, it's like any other thing that we have to train to do. Um, I mean, in sports and everything like that, like you don't just get up to the plate and, I'm going to use baseball because I love baseball. So it's not like you can just get up to the plate and hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball over the fence. Like, that just doesn't happen. These guys train their entire lives to be able to do that. In the same way, I mean, it's not like we're, our natural response to difficulty is to seek out the Lord. Our natural response in tough times is not to get on our knees and pray. That is something that has to happen over time and train. Um, we have to train ourselves to do. Um, we just have to, have to really do it, try to be consistent in doing that. And then over time, as the Lord becomes, as you become more like the Lord, as the Lord continues to work in your heart, you become more mature, that starts to become your automatic response. Um, and so it's imperative that as we encounter suffering that we ask God, what he wants us to learn through these challenges. Um, so it's really important for us when we face hard times, because sometimes you face hard times, like I said, you don't know why. I mean, half the time, you probably, most of the time, you probably don't know why you're facing hard times. Um, so it's important for us to ask God what he wants us to learn through these tough times. Um, the Lord is willing to teach, and he wants us to learn something through it, and um, he's allowing it to happen so that we can grow closer to him. So we need to m- make sure we ask him. That's part of the prayer. And prayer is our way of communicating our needs to God. Um, you might ask why we need to ask God for something if he already knows what we need. Well, he wants us to ask because asking acknowledges that we need him um, and that we depend on him, that he is our sustenance and not our own hard work um, that we can't get by on our own. And he delights to give us what we ask for. So in order for him to give us what we ask for, we have to ask for it. Um, Philippians 4, 4 through 7, such a great verse in, in relation to this. It says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Again, a command, not, not an if, not, um, not an option. It's a command to rejoice. It's essential to be able to rejoice in trials to be a mature follower of Christ. Um, 
He says, let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Such an important verse. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Another portion in that verse I want to point out that's not necessarily part of the scripture um, in James. It says, tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. So one of the best strategies in having joy in your present circumstance is looking back at your past circumstances and seeing how God has brought you through those. Because when you're able to look back and see how God has grown you through those trials, how he has changed you through those trials, you're able to trust him with the current trial that he's going to grow you, that he's going to change you, and that he's going to give you this peace. It's one of the best ways to do it. Um, So let's look at um, the next few verses here. Verse 5, actually, the next verse. Um, Never mind, we were looking at that. He says, one other point, God is generous in verse 5. He wants to give us what we ask for. He delights to give us what we ask for. Um, He doesn't criticize what we ask for. What I mean by criticize or what James means by criticize, it's not like God sits there and as you're praying, he's like, that was stupid to ask for. Well, that that was a dumb prayer. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't sit there and criticize Um, our prayers. Um, We often have a hard time understanding or putting our needs into words. And so what happens is that the Spirit intercedes for us when we pray. Um, And though God doesn't criticize, there is something that hinders our prayers. And that's doubt. Doubt hinders our prayers. Let's look at the next few verses, 6 through 8. It says, but when, we, when he asks, I'm talking about prayer, when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. So even if you don't know what to ask for, you can still pray for it, because the Lord will, uh, the Spirit will intercede for us. However, if you doubt, that undermines your prayer, because what you're really saying is that you don't, you're, you're actually unsure if God is capable of providing what you need. Um, and you don't acknowledge your full need of him because you don't fully trust him. Um, James gives some really good illustrations here um, with the, the being tossed by the wind. He says, uh, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. I mean... A wave of the sea, if you think about it, it really does just get blown all over the place. It, you've got this kind of chaotic picture of a wave being tossed and blown around. Um, faith is not something that can just be blown and tossed around. Um, your faith has to be solid in Christ. You have to really trust that he's going to do what he says, um, that he's going to see you through the trial, that he's going to see you through the circumstance, that he's going to give you wisdom when you ask. Um, so if you struggle with doubt, what do you do if you struggle with it? Because sometimes, again, it's not like you just don't doubt. I mean, I can't just come up here and say, stop doubting. How's that going to help? So we've got to understand what we need to do. And you know what? I think what we have to do, it's really important for us to recognize our helplessness when we face something like that. And what you do is you ask the Lord for wisdom. 
you ask the Lord to help you with your doubt. And that's, that's really the only way to overcome it. You can't will yourself to not doubt. It doesn't happen. You've got to ask God to do it for you. You've got to recognize your need for him. Um, so let's, let's turn to Mark chapter 9, and I'm going to read a little story um, about Jesus and uh, how he heals a demon-possessed boy. It's Mark chapter 9, verse 14. I'm going to go ahead and start. He says, When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, when the crowd saw Jesus they were overwhelmed with awe. And they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about? Jesus asked. Or Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus said to them, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, Since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if you can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. Then the father instantly cries out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. He said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. Afterward, when, the spirit, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out this evil spirit? And Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. So there are two things I really want to draw out from this passage. First, the man recognized his lack of faith. He, he acknowledged that he didn't have enough faith, and he asked Jesus to help him with it. And then what did Jesus do? He did it. He helped him out. He, he recognized, Jesus recognized that the man wanted to believe, and so Jesus heals his son. Jesus is willing to work with anyone who is willing to admit their need to him. The second thing I want to point out was that last verse the demon could only be cast out by prayer. There are some things in this world that only prayer can mend. There are some things in this world that you, the only way to solve them is through prayer because only God is powerful enough to handle them. Um, we so often underestimate prayer and the power of prayer, um, but God can help us with that. So I can tell you from personal experience God has always come through and provided the faith I needed to pray without doubt. Um, sometimes there are, there are days where I get down and pray, and it's like, man, I'm just, I'm, not that I can call out that I'm doubting, but I just don't feel like I'm connecting with God, don't feel like I'm really being genuine in my prayer. And so often at those times, I've got to humble myself and lift, my, lift up my circumstances, 
circumstance to the Lord and acknowledge that I can't have a good relationship with him without him. He has to be the one who's pushing me, um, drawing me in. Um, and I, I promise you, not once have I done that and the Lord not come through. Every time that I've asked the Lord to help me overcome my doubt or help me, help me have a better relationship with you. I mean, that's what Jesus wants is to have a better relationship with you. So when you ask him for that, do you think he's not going to give it to you? Of course he's going to give it to you. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed in the same way. The rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. So I want to help us understand that here. Um, Remember, Jesus is talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. He's talking to people who have already believed. So the poor often already have an understanding that they are not adequate to enter the kingdom of heaven. They already have that positional um, idea. Um, they often, it often takes convincing that they are valuable, that they are loved for them to enter. So if you think about it positionally, the, the poor person is down here and needs to be lifted up. So that's why, that's, that's the concept here. Um, but the wealthy positionally thinks they're here, they're rich. Um, so the wealthy must often be humbled and they must be convinced that they are inadequate and that they need God. They have to be convinced of their need. See the, see the difference there? Usually the poor understand they have a need. The rich think they can take care of everything that, themselves. Um, and so the rich have to often be, have an extra convincing that they are not um, capable and they need have, have a need. Um, so what James is saying here is that the poor man should be grateful that the Lord has lifted him up and the rich man should be glad that the Lord has humbled him. So it brings them both down to the same position, or up and down to the same position. Uh, they are ultimately brought there, um, but they have to be brought in different ways, <clears throat> with different understandings. So as we know, Jesus does teach, it is harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's an extra emphasis here in these verses on the rich man, because like I said, it takes multiple steps for the rich man to understand his need. Um, so here we just need to recognize um, where God brought us from in our own lives. We need to take a look at our life and see where, um, positionally where we were and be grateful for what God has done for us. And whether we were low in spirit um, and he lifted us up or if we were prideful and God humbled us, um, either way, there has to be a humbling before the Lord in order to know him. We have to recognize how much we need him. <clears throat> Verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. There is a great reward in store for those who endure. For those who become fully mature followers of Christ, there is a great reward. Again, I'm going to go back to Romans 8.18, which we talked about earlier. For the present sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. There is a strong reward to, to being uh, too enduring. Verses 13 through 15, and we'll be wrapping up here soon. 
When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So God actually protects you from temptation. He doesn't put you in temptation. Temptation is something that happens because we're in a fallen world. We're in a broken world. We have sinful desires. We kind of talked about how our natural inclination is not to go to the Lord. I mean, so it's because of that sinful nature within us. Um, So that temptation that comes, you know, a lot of people will blame the Lord for temptations. Um, It's not that. It's our own sinful desire. Um, But God actually protects you from these temptations, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So really, God works actively against the temptation in your life. It's not that he is tempting you. He's working against it for you, um, giving you opportunity to escape. So I do want to draw our attention here that James... The trials in our lives versus God's discipline in our lives. Those are they're two different things. Um, God's discipline in our lives really refers to, um, a lot of times it can refer to when we've given into a temptation, when we have sinned, and God is correcting our lifestyle, almost like a father correcting a son. Um, God, the trials here that James is referring to is something that's beyond our circumstance or beyond our control something that we didn't cause to happen in our lives. Um, there's consequence for sin, and in, in this life there are different consequences for sinful behavior. Um, and the Lord does use those to discipline us and get us on track. Um, but here, this is a, a perseverance kind of idea um, where God is um, helping us through trial. So make sure we draw a, diff- a distinction there. In Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, it says, My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline, and don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. <clears throat> so, just a thought on how the early, what a few of the trials that the early church would be facing at this time. You know, it's, it's an a new idea, really. It's a new theology. It's totally new to the world um, that is full of theologies and ideologies already. Um, So they certainly faced physical persecution, um, very heavy physical persecution, not only from the Romans and the Greeks, but also from um, the Jewish Jewish, uh, faith. So they often had to battle many different uh, philosophies, and they, they had to often pray and ask God for wisdom to discern the truth. They often faced, like I said, a lot of different philosophies, so they had to be able to decide what was truth and what wasn't. Um, but these are all challenges that God saw them through. In the same way, God can see us through our challenges. So, though we may not face the same challenges today as the early church did, this is still very applicable to our lives because we all face challenges. Um, We as individuals in the body of Christ will most certainly encounter trials in our lives. When tough times come come through, we've got to try to separate ourselves from our circumstances and think big big picture, that we have an eternal hope and rest. And then we've also got to think small picture, God is growing my faith. 
what is he teaching me through this challenge? We have to ask ourselves that question. What is he teaching me? And how can I use this experience to glorify him more in the future? Prayer is essential to understanding what we need to learn through these circumstances, but also to ask God for peace and joy. That surpasses all circumstance. Prayer should not only be a habit, it should be a reaction to our challenge. Earlier I talked about overcoming weariness by finding your rest in Jesus, by praying and entrusting your difficulties to him. I want to close on a passage that encourages, as we will one day enter into his eternal rest. Um, So let's look at Hebrews 4. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but you can. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. God's promise of entering his, his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. But this good news that God has prepared his rest has been announced to us just as it was to them, them being the Israelites. He's referring to, to Moses and the Israelites travel through the desert. Um, you can actually do a whole sermon on this passage, um, but we'll just touch it briefly. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger I took an oath, they will never enter my, my place of rest. Even though this rest has been ready since he made the world, we know it is ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. But in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. So God's rest is there for people to enter, but those who first heard this good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now if Joshua Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, um, being the promised land, uh, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fall. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before His eyes, and He is the one to whom we are accountable. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Father, we come before your great throne boldly and humbly, because we know that on our own we can't do it. We cannot enter into your rest unless we reach out to you and we accept the grace that you've given us the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Lord, as we enter into our open time and 
take the bread and the cup this morning, Lord. I just pray that we would really keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that we would um, trust you in all of our circumstances, that we'd give you the glory that you deserve, and that we would really open our hearts to your truth, to understand your joy, to understand the joy that you've given us if we receive it. Lord, I ask uh, that you would just be glorified this morning as we take the bread and the cup.